Our text for this morning comes from Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are looking to follow along in the Pew Bibles, you can find this passage that will be in this morning on page 975. And uh, for those of you who have children uh, in the service and would like to have them follow along in in the Jesus Storybook Bible in a passage that you could talk about later that's related to the topics that we'll be covering in this sermon, uh, you can be looking on page 272. It's a story entitled Running Away, and that's again in the Jesus Storybook Bible that's scattered throughout the pews. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series uh, that's entitled Resolving Everyday Conflict. And throughout this series, we've been exploring what the Bible teaches about how we can honor God and pursue peace in our relationships, even in the midst of conflict. And something that we have come back to over and over again throughout this series is that our ability to pursue peace in our relationships does not flow from our knowledge of biblical principles or from a set of communication techniques, but rather from the power of the gospel in our lives. And it's our hope that through this series, we will not only see conflict in our relationships as an opportunity to deepen our own experience of the gospel, of how God has reconciled us sinners to himself, but also as an opportunity for us to live out the gospel in our relationships, that instead of responding sinfully to conflict in our lives, whether we look for ways to attack others or look for ways to escape, that we will, by God's grace, be empowered to pursue peace and embrace a whole new way of approaching our relationships. And three weeks ago, in Proverbs 3, we saw that the foundation of this new way of approaching relationships is to bring God into our situations, right? To acknowledge his presence and trust his wisdom in conflicts, even over and against our own sense of wisdom. And it's as we do this in the midst of conflict, we saw that God promises to lead us, right? To lead us down the paths of peace. And the first place that this path leads us is not to address the sins of other people, but as we saw last week, to own our own part of the problem in our relationships. That instead of exalting ourselves to the position of judge, pursuing peace means submitting to God's sovereignty in our conflicts. It means admitting our own hypocrisy in the midst of conflict, and it means properly confessing our sins to those with whom we are in conflict. And it's only then, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, that only after we have taken the log out of our own eye, taken responsibility for our own sin, that we will see properly in order to take the speck out of our brother's eye. And yet, even though we hear Jesus speaking about this process of confessing our sins so that we might address the sins of the people with whom we are in conflict, 
while some of us may relish that opportunity to confront others with their sin, which is in and of itself, I think, a desire that needs to be confronted, many of us, when we're actually faced with the brokenness in our relationships, we tend to feel ill-equipped. We tend to feel reluctant, even, to address the sins of other people. And instead of looking for ways to help others own their part of the problem in your relationship, we look for ways to avoid confrontation. We buy into this lie that if we give it enough time, or if we just give that relationship enough space, that somehow that relationship will mend itself, will restore peace. And while there are definitely circumstances where overlooking an offense is the right and godly thing to do, our experience and God's word tells us that giving time and giving space does not necessarily mean that relationships will be mended or that peace will be restored. Because like a bone that is fractured, sometimes relationships are so broken that if they are left unattended and unaddressed, They cannot and they will not mend. And as we'll see in our passage this morning in Galatians, honoring God and pursuing peace in our relationships requires us at times to engage with those with whom we are in conflict and to help them address their own sin. But before we turn to God's word, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, for preserving it for us down to this very day and bringing it to us this morning. Father, in your mercy and your compassion, would you help us to understand these things, to see how they apply to our lives and to our relationships. Holy Spirit, equip us to be doers of your word and not simply those who hear. And may we rejoice, not just in your grace and mercy toward us, but in how you are moving in our hearts to show grace and mercy to those whom we are in conflict. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So in our passage, Paul explores what this looks like to honor God and to pursue peace in our relationships by looking for ways to address the sins of others. But before we can dive into understanding how we can help others address their own sin, first and foremost this morning, we need to wrestle with this question. Why must we address the sins of others in the first place? And what I want you to notice here is if you look in verse 1, the short answer to this question is that addressing the sins of others at times is exactly how we follow Jesus in our relationships. Look in verse 1 where the Apostle Paul is addressing those that he anticipates will follow his command. And he says, you who are spiritual should restore him, him being the person that has sinned. And now the temptation as we read this passage is going to be to assume that when Paul is using this word spiritual, he is speaking about some elite group of Christians, right? Those who are particularly mature in the faith, or those who have a position of leadership within the church. But what's important for us to understand is that when we read this passage in the context of the whole letter of Galatians, what we see is that what Paul is doing here is simply expanding or maybe applying something that he's already said in chapter 5. In verse 25 of chapter 5, Paul says this, if we, 
all Christians, live by the Holy Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, those who are spiritual, the one that Paul is giving this command to, those are the people who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, the people who have placed their hope and their trust in Christ alone for their salvation. But even more than that, those people who are spiritual, those are people whose lives are no longer their own, but they are being motivated by the Holy Spirit to address the sins of others because first and foremost, they understand the danger of sin. Looking back at verse 1, I want you to notice how the Apostle Paul is describing sin in the midst of conflict, right? He says, if anyone is caught in any transgression, this word that's translated transgression literally means to deviate from the right path or to wander off the right path. Simply put, sin in our lives or in the lives with those we are in conflict is doing or being what God, or not doing or being what God requires of us in his law. Our actions and our attitudes which rebel against him and destroy the peace of God's creation. But what I want you to notice is that Paul's description of sin is actually more vivid than that. It may even be personified as he's using this phrase, if anyone is caught. This image that Paul is using to describe sin is not so much of a person actively sinning against another, but someone being a victim of sin, someone that's being overtaken or surprised by sin. The analogy is something akin to an animal that's being caught in a trap or being caught by a predator. And while this description of sin, right, of, of overtaking us might sound strange, it's actually more foundational to how the Bible understands sin than perhaps we assume. You guys will remember, if you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll remember the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, and how after the Lord accepted Abel's sacrifice and rejected Cain's sacrifice, that Cain rose up against Abel in the field, and he killed him in cold blood. And before Cain gave in to that temptation, I want you to hear how God speaks to him about his sin nature that he inherited from his father, Adam. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Like a wild animal, our sin nature that we too have inherited from Adam is crouching at our doors. It's always looking for opportunities to overtake us. And apart from God's grace, we would be completely overtaken by sin. Now, this is not to imply that those who sin against God or who have sinned against us, that they are not fully responsible for their sin. They, they are, and there are passages of Scripture that explore that explicitly. But what I want you to notice here is how the Apostle Paul is emphasizing this idea of sin's enslaving of people or sin's oppressing of people so that when we come into the brokenness of our relationships, when we're thinking about approaching those who have sinned against us, we'll not only recognize 
that they are in the danger of sin, but that we would actually be moved to compassion for them, that we would want to respond to the demand of love. And this is where Paul goes next in in verse 2. I want you to notice in verse 2, right? Paul is describing the ultimate goal of addressing the sins of others with whom we are in conflict. And he says that our desire in these conflicts should be to fulfill the law of Christ. In chapter 5, the Apostle Paul describes the law of Christ this way. For you were called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. At the heart of the law of Christ is love. Love for our neighbor. And when we are in conflict, love for those who have sinned against us. This love desires to see even our enemies rescued from the danger of their sin and restored into a right relationship, not just with us, but with God. And it's this desire for our enemies' good, this love that Paul says this will motivate us to actually want to address the sins of others with whom we are in conflict. And perhaps the most striking illustration of this Jesus gave in the parable of the lost sheep. You guys will remember the parable of the lost sheep. It goes something like this, right? If a man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and says to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Think about this parable that you are so familiar with, right? Even though the sheep had transgressed, had deviated from the right path, right? Had wandered into the wilderness. The shepherd has left the 99 who are safe and sound, and he's gone to the one who is lost. The shepherd knows the dangers of the wilderness. He knows that behind every turn is crouching a trap or a predator for that sheep. But even more, he loves the sheep. He wants the sheep to be restored and not just rescued. And so we see love being the primary motivation of this shepherd. And what's important for us to understand is that this parable is first and foremost not about us. It's about Jesus, that Jesus is the good shepherd. To follow Jesus then in our relationships means to follow this good shepherd, to be people who see the danger of sin in the lives with whom we are in conflict and to respond in love, to see them restored. And so what does this mean for our relationships that are currently experiencing conflict? Well, I think it means that we need to recognize that in some cases, avoiding conflict in those relationships, refusing to actually address the sins of those people, is not rooted in your desire for peace. It is rooted in your desire, idolatrous desire, for comfort, for fake peace, 
in your relationships. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, says it like this. Nothing is so cruel as the tenderness that co-signs another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. This is why it is so important that to begin this process, we must own our part of the conflict. Because it's after we have experienced that forgiveness, after we have experienced that restoration, that we will be enabled and motivated to do the same for those with whom we are in conflict. But even if we're seeing the dangers, and even if we're motivated by love, the next question that we need to answer, not just why must we address the sins of other people, but this really practical question of when. When is it the right time to go to somebody and to address their sin? And Paul actually answers this question kind of in verse 1. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Notice this word, if. Now, I will admit, this is probably an incredibly ambiguous way to answer this question, right? Because we could look at this and say, is Paul encouraging us to be hypercritical in our relationships, right? To always be looking for opportunities to nitpick the behaviors of others and to confront them on every single problem and flaw that we identify. We could interpret it that way, but I think it's, in in fact, if we dig a little bit deeper, we can notice that Paul is actually encouraging exactly the opposite. Because that word that's translated caught is what we would describe as an aorist subjunctive. It's a fancy grammar way of saying it's a type of word that's emphasizing not the certainty of something, but the possibility of something, right? It's really an if, not a when. And so what this means is that Paul is saying that determining whether or not you must address the sins of other people, these should not be left to your assumptions, that you should be desiring wisdom and insight before you go and you address the sins of those in your life. And thankfully, Jesus kind of drills down on this topic and I think gives us even more practical kind of commands on how to do this well. And the first place that Jesus does this is in Matthew chapter 5. And in Matthew chapter 5, you don't need to turn there, this is what Jesus says. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, in this passage in Matthew 5, and you can look at it later today if you want, Jesus is describing someone who is attending a worship service. To make it more personal, Jesus is describing us. People who are sitting in a worship service, engaged in the liturgy, and then all of a sudden we remember or we, rem- or we see that somebody has something against us. And then this question kind of lingers in Jesus' commands. What should this person do? Should you and I just finish out the worship service right now? Should we continue to worship God? And Jesus says to his disciples, no. Do not continue to worship God, but instead go to that person with whom you are in conflict. First be reconciled to your brothers and then come and offer your gift. Now, 
I will argue that it's obvious from our experience and just understanding how schedules of people work that there's at some level an exaggeration here on the part of Jesus. But before we over-exaggerate Jesus, don't miss his point. God is more concerned about the state of your relationships than he is about your act of worship or your service to him. This is echoed in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 4, the apostle John says, If anyone says that I love God and hates his brother, that person is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. You see, it's easy to assume that if someone has an issue with us, that it's their problem. Right? If they have an issue with us, it should be their responsibility to come and begin the process of reconciliation. But Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 that that assumption needs to be turned on its head. Following Jesus means taking the initiative to pursue peace in our relationships, even if you don't fully understand how you've contributed to the conflict at hand. But not only do we need to take initiative when we feel that we may have offended someone, we also need to take initiative when people sin against us. Jesus talks about this explicitly in Matthew chapter 18. And in verse 15 of chapter 18, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And we're going to explore Matthew chapter 18 a little bit later in this sermon. But before we consider the details of that, I want you again to hear Jesus' point. Those who have been sinned against, Jesus is saying, must be the ones who take the initiative. You see, it can be easy for us to assume that if the other person hurt us, then they must know that they have hurt us. They must understand the way in which they have affected our lives. And they ought to be the ones who first take the responsibility to begin that process of reconciliation, right? We make these assumptions about the understanding of the person who has sinned against us, and we nurse our wounds, and we fold our arms, right? And we wait for that sinner, right? That sinner is the one that needs to make the first move. And Jesus is saying, this is not what characterizes his disciples. Following Jesus in our conflict does not look like waiting for for an apology. Following Jesus looks like taking the initiative to go to those who have hurt us. And I cannot stress this enough. The reason that taking initiative is at the heart of biblical conflict resolution is because this is exactly what Jesus does to us in the gospel. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Following Jesus, looking to address the sins of others, looks like having that courage to take the initiative 
to have that courage to be the first person to make the move toward peace. This is true in our church relationships. This is true in your relationships with your coworkers. This is true in your relationships with your spouse. But I want to argue and maybe speak to you parents very specifically this morning. This is a powerful way to follow Jesus in your parenting. Because I can't think of a better way to model the gospel to our children than to make it a habit in our home to take the initiative in pursuing peace when they, our children, have sinned against us or when we sin against our children. To be the first to get down on our knees, to look them in the eye and to say, will you forgive me or how can I forgive you? And making that a habit in our home will have a powerful effect of modeling and declaring the gospel, not just to our children, but to the world. And so if we found this courage, right, to take the initiative, if we see the dangers of sin in the lives of those that have sinned against us, if we want to follow the demand of love and fulfill the law of Christ, how do we actually do this? Let's get down to kind of brass tacks and say, how do we actually live this out? And this is the heart of this passage. The Apostle Paul here, however, is not emphasizing the formula that we all want him to emphasize. What Paul is going to emphasize in this passage is more not about what we do to address the sins of others, but how we ought to address the sins of others. And first and foremost, Paul says, if we're going to approach others and try to address their sin, we need to have it be with the goal of restoration. Look in verse 1. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him, him being the person who is in sin. Literally, this word restore means to mend that which is broken. And the analogy is actually quite striking, right? Instead of approaching people who have sinned against us with the posture of a judge, Paul is telling us to take the posture of a physician. It means addressing the sins of others, not primarily looking for an opportunity to air our grievances or looking for an opportunity to win an argument, but rather to reveal to the other person their need of healing and to reveal to them the path of reconciliation and restoration, both with you and with the Lord. And this is why the word of God needs to be central when we look to properly address the sins of others. Because you and I, we're fallible. Our wisdom only goes so far, and even the wisdom that we do have is often misguided. Only the word of God can expose our sin as it needs to be exposed, and only the word of God will show us where healing can be found for our souls and for our relationships as it points us more and more to Christ. You see, too many of us in our relationships want to be the Holy Spirit. We want to be the ones that can come in and we can fix it. We can come in and we can change it to fit our needs and our wants. And instead of doing this, what Paul is saying is that honoring God when addressing the sins of others means aligning ourselves with God's mission for that person's life. 
And that mission, if we truly want to restore somebody to a good relationship with God and a right relationship with us, that is going to be only accomplished, Paul says, with a posture of gentleness. I want you to notice again in verse 1, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, the problem is, is that oftentimes when we come to this word gentleness, we have bad ideas as to what this word means. But thankfully, in the context, Paul is actually contrasting this idea of gentleness with what he's already said in verse 26 of chapter 5. And it's there that we see gentleness contrasted with becoming conceited or being the type of people who provoke one another, right? If we're keeping with that metaphor of a physician, having a spirit of gentleness means having a good bedside manner. It doesn't mean being weak. It doesn't mean being indecisive. It doesn't doesn't mean turning a blind eye to the sins of others or having a lack of conviction. It means being patient, being understanding, being careful, being kind. Anyone who has a good doctor knows what that sounds like, knows what that feels like. And what's, I think, really important for us to understand is that this idea of gentleness is central to who Jesus is. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, when Jesus is speaking about himself, he says, Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, reflecting on these words of Jesus, says this, Gentle and lowly is who Jesus is. Tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding, and even willing. If we are to ask to say one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring him and his teaching if our answer was gentle and lowly. In our relationships, as we seek to restore them and and address the sins in their life, we must do so not from a posture of provoking them, not from a posture of harshness, but from a posture of gentleness, remembering that it is God's kindness which led us to repentance. But even as we're doing this, as we're approaching them, looking to restore them, as we're approaching them in a spirit of gentleness, Paul makes one more comment here about how we need to approach people. And he says we need to do it with a measure of caution. Look where he ends in verse 1. He says, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Why do you think Paul ends this part of the passage with a warning? And what I want you to do is I want you to think about, in your past, a time when you went to confront the sins of other people and it didn't go well. They did not want to talk about their sin. They lashed out, right? What we found in that moment is that not just that they were being overtaken by sin, but that we feel in our own hearts kind of an embodiment of what Mike Tyson said, right? I've said this before. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. 
right? That might be literal. You might actually have been punched in the face. You might be metaphorically thinking about that. It really hurt when they lashed out at me. And you know that when confronting people on their own sin, even if your intentions are God-honoring, when it doesn't go well, the first thing that we need to be on guard against is our propensity, our own sinful tendency to rush back to attacking them or to escaping. That's what Paul is saying. That in the midst of confronting others and wanting to restore them, we may find ourselves in temptation ourselves to abandon this whole idea of biblical conflict resolution and just go back to what we feel is right in the moment. And Paul is saying, if you do that, you will destroy yourself on the paths of peace. We must move forward with a measure of caution. This is why Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 18, which we'll look at here in just a moment, are so important. Because as Paul is giving us kind of the posture and the how to approach, Jesus actually gives us a what should we do so that we can actually pursue peace properly. And in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus says this. I'll just read it in its entirety. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." There is a lot that we could unpack in this particular passage, but there are three things that I want you to see and to hear. The first is the way in which addressing the sins of others, those who have sinned against us, the way that that begins is by us taking the initiative to go ourselves face-to-face in private to tell the person how they have sinned against us. If we think about the conflicts in our lives that have gotten out of hand, it is probably, in some measure, because we have forgotten to do this first task, to go to them privately, one-on-one, and to tell them how that they have sinned against us. Now, it may be that you have done that, that you have taken that initiative, as we talked about, and gone to this person. And and Jesus says, if that person lashes out and doesn't listen to you, even if you come with the desire to restore him, even if you come with the desire to be gentle and keeping a watch on yourself, if they are not listening, then the second step is to take others. And what's important to understand about what Jesus is saying about taking others is we take others not to gossip, but to avoid gossip. Notice how he says that everything needs to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If we open ourselves up to talking about the sins of other people with those in our lives, we are either sinning against those people by gossiping about them, or we are involving them so that they can actually be incorporated into the process of reconciliation and restoration. That in the church especially, our conflicts should be marked, not just by going to people personally, 
but coming together carefully so that we can avoid slander and gossip, but that we can establish things by two or three witnesses. But even then, there are times when this is not what the person who has sinned against us wants to do. They will lash out, they will reject the truth that's being established by two or three witnesses. And what Jesus says at that point is that you need to ask for help. You need to broaden this out, and especially within the church, this means bringing it to the elders' attention so that the elders can guide you and provide you wisdom and a structure to be able to address this as an entire body. If you're in conflict with people who are not within the Christian community, not within Grace Church, this looks like looking for ways to find a mediator, to actually be the person that kind of takes the bull by the horns and says, now both of you, you who want to address the sins of others and those who have sinned, now both of you are going to be under the authority and under the wisdom of now this larger community body. It doesn't look like using the church or using a mediator to destroy someone's lives and expose their sin. It looks like submitting ourselves to the wise counsel of the authority structures that God has given us in our lives so that restoration can be pursued. Go yourself, first and foremost, in private. Take others to avoid gossip and ask for help and submit to the leadership, either through mediators or especially within the church, the elders. Because we're called not to simply experience the gospel in our own lives, but to live this out in the lives of others. And there are many ways that we can do that, right? There are many ways that we can honor God in our lives, but I would argue that one of the best ways to do that is to pursue peace in our relationships, to pursue peace with those who have sinned against us, motivated by love, willing to take initiative, willing to seek restoration and approach them in gentleness, always keeping a watch on ourselves. All of these things demonstrate that we have a desire not to go our own way, but to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing the burdens, bearing the sins of those who have sinned against us. Because this is exactly how Christ has moved toward us. That on the cross, Christ came to us to bear our burdens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you have done to come to us in our sin and in our need to give us reconciliation and rest. Thank you for the forgiveness that is so freely offered to us in Christ. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts to offer and extend this same grace to those who have sinned against us. Help us to understand these things in practical ways so that we might live out the gospel in the conflicts that we find ourselves. Thank you for being with us this morning and for helping us in Jesus' name. Amen.